right into it. I'm going to go from preaching to meddling right now, okay? So here we go. Here's the question. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? Actually, that's not even the question I really want to ask you because maybe intellectually you have an answer. So let me rephrase it. Who does your life say Jesus is? Who does your life say Jesus is? So, uh, throughout the scriptures, Jesus is identified a few different ways. And I, I want to bring that to light today. So, you may see Jesus as somebody who presents the very words of God, but individually, not really connected with you. Doesn't affect you, doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't challenge you, doesn't change your mind or your heart. If that is true, then you may see Jesus as a prophet, and that's all. Your life may say that Jesus is a prophet. Uh, there may be uh, some of you who today identify Jesus more as a person who is, intellect or who is interested with the political uh, atmosphere of the day. That it's his hope to change or transform groups of people politically. But again, individually, it doesn't really connect. And if that's true, you may see Jesus like others have seen Jesus as a revolutionary. There are another group of people who see Jesus intellectually. Oh, his teaching is spot on and is really good, is insightful, is helpful. Um, and intellectually, you connect with Jesus. And Jesus is simply a teacher. According to your eyes. There are another group of people, perhaps, who would see themselves as the director of their life, the, the person who's in charge. No accountability to others, no need to inform others, just I do what I want to do when I want to do it, though maybe you wouldn't say it that way. That's the reality of your life. And Jesus comes in and challenges that thought by saying, He's God, and you're not. And that's blasphemous to your life, to your life. How do you see Jesus? Who do you say Jesus is? Who does your life say Jesus is? But there may be some of you today who go, well, wait a minute. I see Jesus as the very one who fulfills these Old Testament prophecies in very real ways. He's the one who, empowered by the Spirit, spoke by the Spirit because he is God in the flesh. And I've received his words in dynamic ways that have been transformative in my life. Not just that, but I also acknowledge that Jesus is the one who's in control of people. And he moves people and nations the way that he'll move people and nations. But he also cares about us individually and is at work in us and through us on an individual level. Not just that, but also, you may say, his teaching is not just engaging in my mind, but engaging in my spirit and transformative in my behavior. Not because I want to earn a place in my walk with God or earn my salvation, but rather because I love him, because he loved me so much, I, I want to serve him. I want to apply this. Not just that, but you might also look at the word of God and say, yes, he is God in the flesh. There is no question my mind that he is God in the flesh. He is not a blasphemer, but rather the spirit that dwells in him is the same spirit that dwells in me as a believer, and I affirm his role. He is indeed the son of God. And so, who 
is your life saved? Jesus. We're going to be working through uh, Mark chapter 4, the end of chapter 4, and chapter 5 today. And it's going to be that question that drives us and helps us to understand things. There's a lot of stuff. I wish that we could dig in uh, to the context of the first century and second temple Judaism and, and look a little bit more deeply into it. We, we just don't have that time right now. But what we do have time to do is look to see who Jesus is and specifically who he says he is. Join me as we pray. Lord, we love you. We, we thank you, oh Lord, and we praise you. We ask for you this hour, this year, to hear the hearts of your saints. And today, as we ask a simple question, it's a question that's been asked throughout time. Who is this Jesus? Lord, we, we ask that you would help us to look at the realities of our lives. If we're walking in the flesh or in the spirit, if we're born again or if we're just born to walk. Lord, help us to uh, be able to identify that. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. And empowered by your spirit, Lord, we, we ask that you would transform us to be uh, children, to follow the Father, the way of the Father. Help us to know you and walk more closely with you, even right now. It's in Jesus Christ's precious and holy, holy, holy name. John Cross wrote a book. It's called The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus. In the book, he identifies an illustration that was true in his life when he went to Papua New Guinea. He went to Papua New Guinea, and while he was there, they went to a tribal village. And as they were walking through, he noticed different things that were out. There, there were some oars, some paddles that were out, and he inquired about them. There was a canoe that was out, and he inquired about it, and he's, he was fascinated by the different ways that, that he understood stuff compared to the way that the tribal village understood stuff. So the way they understood it, or the question he asked was, whose oar is that? Whose canoe is that? And they would say, the, the person who made it. Well, wait a minute, couldn't I buy that from them? Well, you could give them money, but it's not yours. Well, well, why not? Because you didn't make it. If you made it, then it's yours. If you want a canoe, make a canoe. But that canoe is not yours. So you mean that I could use this canoe, take it down the river, uh, set up a tent, and in the morning, the person who created it could come and get that canoe and take it back. Uh, yeah, that's what we're saying. Why is that? Because the canoe belongs to the person who created it. In other words, there is a certain amount uh, of ownership that is due to the person who created it. And so we look at this mindset throughout the scriptures that there is something about the creator that has ownership of that which is created. And we recognize from Jesus uh, that, that he is the word uh, who dwelt among us, that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we see that in John chapter 1, that nothing was made without him that was made. In other words, Jesus is the creator. And so, 
And that way of thinking, he has ownership over all of creation. But having ownership is one thing, and having authority is another. Like I say, I have ownership, but I, I may not have authority. It's not fully within my power. Maybe a good illustration was because my uh, youngest son is playing baseball, and uh, I really appreciate his coaches. He's got some fantastic coaches, just good guys, really good guys. But those coaches said, hey, parents, I'm going to need you to run a lap around the ball field, and then I'm going to need you to play second base a little bit later. I'm going to go, man, probably not. Why? Because he has no authority in my life. Uh, he has authority over specific people, over a specific time, for a specific reason, and that's all the farther his authority goes. He, he can't tell me what to do because he's not the boss of me. But while my son's playing for him, he is his boss. When they're on the field, he is his boss, and he does tell him what to do, and it's his responsibility to be under that authority. Jesus is not just a creator-owner, but he also has authority. And that's what we're going to see. The way that we can tell that someone has authority is because uh, they have the ability uh, to change things, to identify uh, differences, and to call those differences to light and to change them, as we'll see throughout this passage. If you're not there, we want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35 through 41 keeping in mind that at this time Jesus had gone through a series of parables. At the end of the, or sorry, about the middle of the chapter, in verse 10, he identifies why he's speaking in parables. And basically it's for this, those who are of the kingdom would better understand the ways of the kingdom through these parables. Those people who are not of the kingdom, they're not going to understand. They're just not going to get it. And so the disciples lean into that. They're like, uh, make sure I understand this, because I want to be of that heavenly kingdom, not of this worldly kingdom. And so, at the end of the, those parables, uh, Jesus goes into that. And this is where we pick it up in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41. Let me outline it, because we have so much scripture today that we're covering. I'm just going to outline it, and then identify a specific passage in each section. So, in this section, Jesus displays his power over nature by calming the storm. The disciples witness Jesus' authority and question his identity. Jesus rebukes the disciples for their lack of faith and reveals himself as the Son of God. Who is he? The Son of God, the Creator, who has ownership and authority. We need both of those things if he's really the Son of God. And we need to see those things at work in these passages. Watch and see what happens. Uh, we'll start in just a moment in verse 38, but leading up to that, uh, they've gone in a boat. <coughs> They're leaving a crowd behind them, and a big storm rises. And in the midst of the storm, the, the boat is starting to take on water. There is a problem, and the disciples are sure it's going to sink. Look at how nervous Jesus is, verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. <laughs> I love that. There is a storm coming in, and Jesus just needs to take a nap. It's, it's going to be okay, fellas. 
And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? They're sure they're going to die. And Jesus awoke and rebuked <laughs> the wind and said to the sea, Be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Now, I recognize that this, the, the principle here that God calms storms is, is absolutely true. Sometimes, as a pastor, when someone is going through a, a deep loss, when um, someone uh, gets news that is shocking, maybe it's health news, or maybe they've lost a job, one of the prayers that I will often pray is associated with this passage, and I'll say something like, Lord, would you stand up in the boat of our hearts and say, peace be still, and I, I believe that that works. However, the greater narrative here and the purpose of this passage is not about Jesus giving us peace in our heart, but rather that Jesus is the Son of God who has not just uh, authority, but is also the owner of creation. He created it. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. And we see that in this passage in verse 40. And he said to them, the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? You see the compare and contrast here? That there is fear on one side compared to faith. They, they don't coexist. They don't mingle together. But rather, they're, they're separate, like light and darkness. They, they just don't blend well. There's either faith or there is fear in this case. And they're displaying their fear. Uh, how, do they, how do they display it? Jesus, get up, do something about this. How can you be sleeping when we're dying? Verse 41. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Jesus is identifying himself as the creator, the one who has ownership over creation. And he displays that by his authority. His authority to what, what would be natural to address things in a supernatural way. Jesus is identifying and as the one who has authority. And so, as we consider that passage, we might ask a few questions. And these questions are for us to take in individually. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God who has the power over nature? And then two, what sort of sense of peace does this truth offer us? What sort of sense of peace does this truth offer us? It's something for us to rest over, that Jesus is the creator, and has ownership over creation, and therefore directs creation as he wills and as he chooses, and in a way that is set up naturally for storms to kind of work their way through, Jesus supernaturally stands up and calms the winds and waves. Why? Because he's the creator and, and displays that through his authority. How does that give us peace? You may be thinking, I would really like it if Jesus would give authority right now to make it sunny outside instead of cold. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, that's not where we're going with this. But how does he offer peace in our situation? Let's keep moving forward. As we ask that question, how do we see Jesus? Who do we say he is? Who do our, how does our life identify him? In the next section, in Mark chapter uh, 5, starting in verse 1 through 20, this is a section that as we started to set up this series, we said, uh, 
we are not going to be able to deal with this passage as it really should be dealt with. We're only going to be able to look at about a 35,000 foot of view of this passage. So we set up a seminar for tonight called Angels and Demons. That seminar is for us to be able to dig in just a little bit deeper, uh, to look at this passage and actually the supplemental passage that goes along with it uh, in, in Luke chapter 8. It's significant that we take time to do that. Uh, it's significant uh, because today in the sermon, we're just identifying who Jesus is, not how angels and demons work. Tonight we'll deal with how angels and demons work. Seem to work. So let's break this down. Jesus heals a man who is possessed by demons, displaying his power over evil forces. The man is freed from his torment, his life is transformed, and the townspeople are amazed and afraid of Jesus' power, recognizing him as the Son of God. Uh, it, this, is, this is one of those passages that's so interesting. Uh, Jesus is going over to this area of the, the country of the Gerasenes. In this area, there are a lot of Gentiles. It's dominated by Gentiles. There are some Jews in the area, of course. And what we start to see, what becomes really apparent immediately, is uh, things aren't quite right. There is a guy who is demon-possessed. He's demon-possessed, and he's living in a graveyard. In this graveyard, he's cutting himself. He's not okay. Uh, in verse 4, we find out that he's been shackled and chained, and he regularly just breaks the shackles and chains. He has supernatural ability. People shouldn't be able to just break chains. That's why he does it. And he does it regularly. Uh, no one can subdue him, we find out in verse 4. And night and day, he goes to the tombs in the mountains and cries out himself. Strange behavior in Jesus. And this is where we pick it up in verse 6. And when he, the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Catch that. So this man who's demon-possessed sees Jesus from afar, and these demons that are inside of him recognize <coughs> who Jesus is before Jesus is close thing to know. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you do to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He recognizes who he is. Jesus isn't telling him, Jesus, I'm the Messiah of the world. I'm God in the flesh. I'm, I'm the one who has authority because I'm the creator of all things. He doesn't do that. It is spiritually discerned. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. The verses to follow uh, identify some things. So one is that there is this pig farm right there, these, these unclean animals. The Jews like, oh, I don't have anything to do with this. Uh, they should not have had that. that. That wouldn't have been well received in the Jewish community. But there are also 2,000 of them that Jesus, when he casts out the demon, they rush into the swine and they go into the water. And again, there's more we're going to uncover tonight about that, especially as it relates to Luke chapter 8. Uh, but looking at it, 
from a high view. Does that mean that there were 2,000 students in it? Maybe, but it's just not really clear what, what that number is, what it means exactly. Uh, legion, of course, is a, a phrase that was used in the Roman uh, military. It could mean several thousand, uh, as many as several thousand. I see 2,000 uh, big twine there. Could be 2,000. Uh, we just don't know. If that many demons could live in one person, that many demons probably could uh, be in one animal, I suppose. I don't know how it works. But we see this, that Jesus, because he has authority over creation, is able to speak a word. And creation responds, not just, not just the winds and the waves and the water, but also the supernatural. They're submitted to the authority of Jesus, that Jesus can tell them what to do and they have to do it. Why? Because he is the creator, because he has authority. And Jesus displays that authority in this passage. Now, going on just a little bit further, it's interesting in this respect that this demon-possessed man, he comes back to Jesus. He's in his right mind. And in verse 19, Jesus says, uh, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And then they were marveled. Why would they marvel? Because, wait, that's the guy that was in the tomb, or up in the tombs in the graveyard, cutting himself, yelling all the time, that no one could subdue, that was breaking chains, and now he's in his right mind in front of us. This is, this is amazing. What is going on? Who is this Jesus who has authority over creation? Who is he? So, we have to ask the question, has the Lord set you free? Has the Lord set you free? Is there something that God wants to do in me and through me to give me freedom? Something that maybe is even influenced by the demonic. Does God want to give you freedom? Absolutely. And he has authority to do so. <coughs> Again, we don't have time to go into the depths of that, like what tonight is about. Uh, but right now, have you experienced that sort of freedom? Additionally, Jesus gives them a command. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now this is a message that Jesus has given the guy who was possessed and is free, right? I'm also going to say, we're not going to do wrong if we do the same thing, right? Like, that's a good option. If you've experienced freedom in Christ, we should share that, those stories. We should talk about God's goodness. In this next section, uh, it starts with Jairus' uh, coming to Jesus and telling his story and his daughter's sick and to the point of death, and, and he wants Jesus to come and lay his hands on his daughter and pray for her. And in the midst of this, there's a crowd that starts to swell around Jesus. It's as if the crowd knows that this guy is claiming to be the Messiah, and there have been some things that have happened. He's, he's uh, set people free from demons. He's supernaturally done miraculous things. Who is he? Maybe if we just get near him, we can hear his words. Maybe we can even talk to one of the disciples. Maybe this Jesus will talk to us. You can imagine kind of the, the atmosphere that Jesus is walking into 
Jairus comes and says, my daughter is sick and I just need you to go. Jesus agrees to go and the pressure of the crowd is coming in. And there's also this sick girl that needs a doctor. You can feel the anxiety perhaps of the moment. What is happening? What will happen? And in the midst of that, the moment is broken from a woman who's been suffering from an issue of blood for 12 years. Been bleeding. Can't stop. She's gone to doctors. Perhaps she's she's gone to professionals that can't help. Perhaps she's tried to seek natural solutions, and that that can't help. And she has to be so careful because interacting with her would cause other people to be unclean. There would be things that other people couldn't do if she comes in contact. And so she has, for 12 years, been the social leper in the community. And she's in this place where she is beside herself. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, tells us that the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. During that second temple uh, period, there was a belief that when the Messiah came, that he would have this supernatural healing ability in his prayer shawl. If they could just reach out and touch the hem of his prayer shawl, there would be some healing in that. And that's interesting because that's what we're going to see in just a moment. Let's take a look at the first section of the woman who has the issue of blood. So she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. She's behind him, touches the hem of his garment. Son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Maybe this is the Messiah. I've tried everything else. I won't tell anybody that I'm unclean. I'm going to keep it on the down low and, and see what happens. Verse 28. But she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself, the power had gone out from him immediately turned about her brow and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? Like, everybody touched you, Jesus. What do you mean? Don't miss what is going on in the pressure of the moment and the heat of the moment while they're going to a place to see a little girl who is sick and to reach out to heal her to hopefully get there before she gets even worse. Jesus stops and acknowledges something. He's going to acknowledge someone who is acknowledging two people. One who has authority and one who has uh, a power over people. Who touched my garments? He's not putting them in a place. He's identifying her faith. Verse 34, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Can you imagine the freedom of this woman who has only known the burden of this disease and now is set free by the Messiah, the one who, the God who came in the flesh, the Creator, who has authority? Not just that, but one who loves her and cares enough to stop in the heat of the moment and care for her needs and speak life to her. Perhaps, perhaps the only man who's done that in the world. <coughs> what a gift this Messiah is. Have you sought the Lord for healing? Well, maybe you don't have an issue like this woman has had an issue. Maybe. But there's still provision given in the scriptures 
for healing. In fact, from James chapter 5, uh, we're told that uh, if we're weak, if we're sick, we should go to the elders and ask the elders to pray for us, that we would confess our sins and have them anoint us with oil and pray for us. When we practice that, we're allowing the elders to function in the role that God has asked them to function within. And so the elders will take time to confess any sin. If they have any, they confess it. If you have any, you confess it. And then to anoint with oil. Not that this is some sort of magic formula. It's not. But it is something that the Lord has prescribed through his word for the church for the sake of healing, for the sake of rejoicing, for the sake of saying, there is a God who came in the flesh, who is the creator of all things, who has authority in my life. And because he has authority in my life, I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to ask the elders to anoint me with oil and pray for me. Have you done that? Will you be willing to practice that? Because our lives speak loudly of who we say Jesus is. And this may be one way to practice it. Let's keep going. Additionally, there is this uh, Jairus who wants his daughter healed. And in the midst of all this, I'm thinking of his own anxiety, and I admit I am projecting into this. I absolutely am uh, projecting. But perhaps Jairus is in this place of, my daughter is sick, and she keeps getting sicker. And now this woman, praise God that God healed her, but my daughter is sick. Let's get there. Let's take care of her. So she dies. She dies, and in verse 38, just before this, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. Now, here's why that might matter. There were professional uh, mourners. Now, why does that matter? Well, these professional mourners, people who were paid to mourn, knew what death looked like. Right? They've been around it. They got it. They understood it. This is death. Their heart's not beating anymore. They're dead. They knew when it was time to mourn and when it wasn't time to mourn. And Jesus shows up in that place. And he entered. And he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Jesus, we've been around we actually get paid to know when someone's dead. And this girl is dead. But Jesus ruins funerals all the time. And this is one that he ruins. In the midst of the mourning of this child, uh, we pick it up in verse 40 with the mourner's response. They laughed at him, Jesus. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. She was 12 years of age. And that lady, uh, she had been 12 years with that issue of blood. wonder if there's a connection. Well, too bad we don't have time today to go through. And they were immediately <coughs> overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. 
told them to give her something to eat. Jesus is displaying his authority over creation because he is the creator. Who we say Jesus is actually does matter. And so we pause in this moment and just ask the question, is the Lord Christmas in love? In a place of death where fear has become the norm and faith is just not available seemingly. Has the Lord lifted you up and taken you from that place of death to a place of life that brought you into a place where you can experience his presence and live? Are you in a different place? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he the one who gives the words of God but doesn't really care about the individual? Is he the one who is more concerned with political movements than he is the people that are affected by the political movements? Is he one who, who teaches and, and interacts with the mind in such a way that is stimulating but doesn't care for the soul? Is he the one who blasphemes, claims that he is God, tries to take authority away from us? Or is he the Son of God? I would suggest that he's the Son of God who has the ability got authority over the winds and the waves, who has authority over the supernatural, the spiritual. Even the demons believe that there is a God and shudder. And we certainly saw that in the beginning of Mark chapter 5 and verses 1 to 9. Is he the God who can heal ailments? Is he the Son of God who can deliver us from death? I want to suggest that he's the Son of God. And that because of his work on the cross, we have an opportunity to respond to him in faith and to move from fear into faith and death to life. Today, as the worship team comes, I want to encourage us to ask that question. Have we allowed God to be the owner of our life, the creator? Is he the owner of our life? The one who has authority Will I allow him to have authority? Communion is a time where we come together and we remember the work of Jesus, that he's bringing us into relationship with him because of his sacrifice. We remember Jesus and the blood that was shed that we could have life. We remember Jesus because it's all about him, the Son of God. Today, as we participate in communion, uh, we, I want to encourage you with a few things. One is, you don't have to be a member of Friendship Church to participate in communion. But communion is for the believer. Those that have said, I'm, I'm following Jesus. I'm surrendered to him. That, that's, that's who communion is for. And we participate <coughs> at Friendship Church. We ask you to go to the station that's nearest you uh, by coming down the carpeted areas, getting both elements, and then returning on the outer uh, on the outer aisle back to your seat. We worship together, and then Pastor Jason in a few moments will lead us uh, in participating together. But before we go there, we would ask that you take a few moments. Just ask the Lord to examine your heart. Do I, does my life treat Jesus like he's a prophet? Like, like he's a revolutionary? Like he's a teacher? Like he's a passionate, or does my life reflect that he, like Thomas said, is my Lord and my God? Let's pray together.
there's sin to confess it, turn away from it, turn towards the Lord, and watch and see what God will do. Join me as we pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for what you've created. We ask today that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. As we seek you for some answers, some answers about our lives, it's not not just that intellectually we can acknowledge that you are the Son of God, but Lord, our, our lives should reflect that truth as well. And so help us, even in these moments, Lord, to uh, surrender ourselves to your ownership and your authority for your good glory. Lord, we would, would even now ask for forgiveness for those times where we have treated you differently when we've acted as if you were a prophet or a messenger or a revolutionary or even a blasphemer. Forgive us, O Lord. We surrender to you now.